I invite you to please turn in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This evening's text will be verses 9 through 11. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving Word. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask as your humble servants that you would speak to us boldly and clearly in your word tonight. Help us to reflect on that glorious day when indeed every knee shall bow and tongue confess that our precious Savior, Redeemer, and Friend, that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly Lord of all. Help us, we pray, for his glory and our own good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the spring of 1965, a 17-year-old high school senior was feeling trepidatious about his impending graduation. He saw it as the end of his childhood, the end of innocence, indeed the beginning of the great unknown. And so he began to reminisce about his days growing up and the stories that he used to read as a child. Stories about Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh. His fear of what lay around the corner caused him to long for a time when things were simple. The young man was named Kenny Loggins, and he wrote a song about this experience. He wrote these words, Our days disappeared all too soon, but I've wandered much further today than I should. And I can't seem to find my way back to the wood. So help me if you can. I've got to get back. I wonder if you have ever felt that way. This world is always changing and there is a great tendency to look back to the good old days. There's a tendency to think that if I could just get back to the way things were, then everything would be all right. There's something really comforting about the past because after all it was only yesterday that all my troubles seemed so far away but now it looks as though they're here to stay it's a very common place to look for peace in times of uncertainty that's a large part of why our culture is so uh, saturated with nostalgia in entertainment right now. It seems like every few months there's an exact remake of a previously beloved movie or a reboot of a previously beloved film franchise. But to seek comfort from the past is a fool's errand. The Bible actually tells us we are not to do such things. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 10 says... Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Of course, that's not to say it's bad to have fond memories of the past, but to seek peace and refuge there is unwise. 
For one, we have a tendency to selectively remember our past. Sure, there may be high points that stick clearly in our minds, but we tend to forget the daily stress because, after all, sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. Those who journal know this to be true. But secondly, we ought not to seek comfort from the past because we can't get there. Life goes on. You're chasing something that is likely not real and certainly not attainable. So where is comfort to be found? It's certainly not in the dismal present state of things, nor is it in the elusive memory of the past. Where is it? Christians know the answer to this. Comfort in this life is found in the very word of God. That word which says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 to 2. And specifically, comfort is found from God's word as it reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. And primarily... God's peace in Christ brings peace with him. We have been reconciled to God. We are no longer at war with him. But in his grace, as the scriptures reveal to us Christ and grow us in the grace and knowledge of him, we are also restored to right relationships with one another. And that is why as Paul concludes his plea for peace and unity amongst the Christians at Philippi, he points them to Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson said of this passage, There are few more impressive expositions of Christ's identity than Paul gives us in these verses. To which Martin Lloyd-Jones would add, There is nothing so good and comforting as we face this life than to realize the present position of that glorious person. And in our last studies, we've seen Paul issue this imperative or this command in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. And in order to do that, Paul points us to Jesus, namely his works in the past on our behalf in verses 6 to 8. And also his present exalted state in verse 9. And then tonight, his future glory. You might say that in his call to unify the church, Paul points to Christ's past as their example. He points to Christ's present as their strength for today. And he points to Christ's future as bright hope for tomorrow. And so it is for us. If we are to be faithful to one another, we must start with the faithfulness of our God. His faithfulness to keep and fulfill all of his promises which are in Christ, yea and amen. He has been faithful in sending Christ. He has been faithful in raising Christ. And he will be faithful to consummate the kingdom at Christ's return. Christianity, I trust we know well, is based in real historic facts such as are recorded in Philippians 2, 6-8. And also in the present realities But we tend to forget that Christianity is more than that. Paul does not leave us just at Christ's present state because Christianity is a fundamentally 
future-oriented faith. We are a people now that are presently waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as Paul directs our attention to the second coming of Christ, he highlights three things in this passage that will be our focus for the evening. First, the name that is bestowed at his return in verse 9. Secondly, the response to his return in verses 10 to 11. And then lastly, the glory of his return, and that's the last part of verse 11. So, the name bestowed at his return, the response to his return, and finally, the glory of his return. Let's begin with the name that is bestowed. Look again at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This verse raises a natural question. What is the name? Many trees have given their lives for the sake of the debate amongst the commentators to answer that question. Now, on the the surface of it, it appears that there are two options. You can have the name of Jesus, which is the only name listed directly in this passage, or the title of Lord. But the problem with, with saying that the name in reference here is Jesus is that name has already been bestowed. That was given to him in the incarnation. That was the name given by the angel Gabriel. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. However, the problem with taking the title of Lord to be the name is, simply put, titles are not names. So what are we to do? What is the name? I am persuaded that the name in reference here is actually Lord, but in the all-caps sense of Lord. That is to say, the name above every name is Jehovah, or Yahweh. That sacred name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Now I admit, on the surface, that does not appear to be a live option. So let me explain how I got there. First of all, and easily missed, the text uses the definite article. This is the name, which in the Old Testament is another way of referring to the name of Yahweh. In Leviticus 24.11, a man is stoned to death for blasphemy against the name. In the Jewish mind, the name that is above every name always has been and always will be Yahweh. Secondly, Paul has already equated the name of Jesus with the name of Yahweh multiple times in this letter, most pointedly in chapter 1 and verse 6, where he speaks of the coming return of Jesus Christ as the day of Jesus Christ, which is an allusion to the Old Testament prophetic day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh. Finally, and most conclusively, verses 10 and 11 of our passage tonight are a direct quotation from the prophet Isaiah. You actually heard it in the call to worship tonight, specifically Isaiah 43, where Yahweh says through his prophet Isaiah, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance, which is exactly what Paul says will happen at the bestowal of this name. Isaiah says it happens at the name of Yahweh, and Paul says it will happen when that name is bestowed on Jesus. Therefore, the name is Yahweh. But this raises another question. If Jesus has always been fully God, and he has, and he is repeatedly identified as Yahweh, 
and he is, then what does it mean to bestow that name on him at his return? The second person of the Trinity has always been and will always be Yahweh. That does not change. But what's being said in Philippians is that God the Father is publicly declaring in this exaltation that which had previously been hidden in his earthly ministry. You'll recall there are several points in the Gospels where Jesus appears to conceal his identity. He never denies it, but he also never uh, boldly proclaims it to the masses. Even when he's asked directly by the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate, he answers almost cryptically saying, you have said that it is so. This is actually alluded to in Philippians 2.7, which says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That is, he veiled, did not devoid himself of, but he veiled his Godhead in the manhood. And in some sense, this bestowal of the name above every name is the pulling back of that curtain. One commentator explains it this way. Before the eyes of chosen witnesses by which he means the apostolic witnesses to the resurrection and the ascension, before their eyes, the Father gave visible demonstration of his estimation of Jesus, that he is Lord of all, heaven, earth, and hell alike, that his deity is unquestionable. Jesus has now, he's referring to the return, emerged from incognito into his full and acknowledged possession of the divine name and lordship. Earthly parents do something similar to this when we send out birth announcements or in our day and age post them to social media. The announcement is a public declaration that our family has a new member. And it's an invitation to all to celebrate that fact. Now, in reality, our family has had a new member well before the announcement went out. Our family had a new member before the birth. Our family had a new member from the moment of conception. The announcement does not make it so, but rather is an open acknowledgement of something that has long been the case. In a similar way, God the Father bestowing the name of Yahweh does not make Jesus Yahweh, but acknowledges that he always has been. Indeed, into eternity past, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And it is a call for us to worship him accordingly. And this, this future bestowal of the name that in some sense already belongs to him, it actually provides hope for us as we are reminded of our own already but not yet benefits in Christ. That is, those, those benefits, those blessings that we possess in some manner but have not fully realized yet. For example... In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of our resurrection bodies. I hope you are looking forward to your resurrection body, one that will not decay anymore, that one that will not get sick anymore, one that will not get tired anymore. And yet that's a future benefit. We are clearly not there. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, that we have the Spirit as a guarantee. That is, we have the assurance that it will be realized. Westminster Larger Catechism 90 captures well a summary of the biblical hope that we have at Christ's return. The Catechism asks, What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? By which they mean Christ's return. The answer is, at the day of judgment, 
The righteous shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted. They shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joy, made perfectly holy and happy in both body and soul. Now surely, there is a sense in which we participate in many of those benefits now. I hope you know that on the authority of Romans 8.1, I can tell you that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. And yet, there is a future looking forward to the dropping of the gavel, as it were. There ought to be freedom from sin in your life now. There ought to be sins in your life that were temptations to you years ago that are now repulsive to even think about. There ought to be progressive freedom from sins in this life now. I look forward to being a better Christian five years from now than I am today, and I hope you do as well. And yet, we will be fully and finally freed from sin in the age to come. When Christ returns, that pardon, that freedom that holiness and happiness, all of which we have a foretaste of now, they will be fully realized then. But in addition to hope for the future, the reminder that Jesus is Yahweh is also instructive for us today. It is a reminder that as we seek to obey this command in Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that we are not merely seeking to conform our pattern of life to that of a man. Not even just the greatest man. Rather, we are seeking conformity to the character of our great and eternal God himself. We are creatures being molded to the character of our creator. Authenticity is at a high premium in our day. And our culture will tell you that to be your authentic self is to be true to all of the innermost desires of your heart. There are even some well-meaning Christians that can fall into a form of this thinking. Out of a desire to be real and relevant, they can easily become so consumed with their present, what they call brokenness, that they forget the rest of the gospel. Yes, We were those things. And it's helpful to remember that God can save even the most wretched, even in the midst of their sin. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's true. But to be your real, authentic self is not to proudly boast in your present sins. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the Christ of, or the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14 To be your authentic self is to pursue a life patterned according to who you were made to be, pressing on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Pressing on to the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12, and 14. And we're pressing on with confidence. Because even though we stumble and fall after years, even decades of our Christian life, even though we still make huge mistakes and may fall into gross sins, 
We press on with confidence even in spite of sins that would wound the conscience and grieve the Spirit because in the language of our confessional standards, we are never so utterly destitute of the seed of God and the love of Christ. That, that love of Christ who has promised that if anyone is in Him, He is a new creation. And He will make you new. The truth is, we are our most authentic selves when we seek to be more like Jesus. Because it is He who has made us and not we ourselves. As one of my former professors, Dr. Belcher, wrote on our role as human beings, it is not yet complete according to God's original design. But we see Jesus. We find our true humanity and identity in Him. When Jesus comes again, our true identity as human beings will be restored in the new heavens and the new earth. So in turning from sin and seeking to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we're not suppressing our authentic selves. We're suppressing sinful desires so that we can be our authentic selves. So that we can be who we were made to be. And among other things, one result of that will be true, abiding unity, which was Paul's call to the church at Philippi then and to us today. So having considered then the name that will be bestowed upon Jesus at his return, the name of the great creator, the great I am, let us now move on to the response to his return. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The bowing of the knee is, of course, a recognition of and submission to his absolute and uncontested authority over all things. You see, unlike his initial coming when we are told that his own did not receive him, when he comes again in his exalted state, knees will bow and tongues will confess that he is Lord of all. Consider for a moment the extent of this response. It's not just the people who are on earth at that time. No, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All saints who are, were, or ever will be will all bow together and confess the Lordship of Christ together. This is a hopeful expectation for the people of God. Worshipping him with the heroes of the faith gone by, with, with, with Polycarp and Chrysostom and Augustine and Anselm and Calvin and Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and on you could go. And also, worshipping him together with dearly beloved family and friends and mentors who have gone on before us. We will worship him together once more. Not to mention, we will worship him with angels all in heaven and on earth and under the earth. James Montgomery Boyce notes, Our praise at best is a lisping, but it is glorious to know that in the day when the redeemed stand before God the Father, our feeble voices will be swelled by the voices of millions of angels who have seen the drama of salvation unfold. What a blissful thought that is. All the saints, past, 
present, and future. In unison, from earth's wide bounds to ocean's furthest coast, through gates of pearl and streams the countless hosts, singing to the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Alleluia. I remember not too long ago, walking down the halls in seminary, and I was preparing for a Hebrew exam, and I passed one of my classmates in the hall, and I asked him how he was doing. And we all know how that conversation is supposed to go, right? I ask, how are you? He says, I'm well. We both keep going and take the test we wish we didn't have to. Or, if he was raised in the South, he stops and asks me, how are you doing? And then I say, I'm well, and we go on to take the test that we're dreading. But he didn't do that. He stopped, and in all sincerity, he looked down and he said, He didn't come back today. But maybe tomorrow. That is the Christian's hope in this life. Not a better economy, not a better government, not a better society, though yes and amen, we could use all of those things. But the great hope is the return of Jesus when without fail, the creation will honor her creator. And Christians have been looking forward to this hope for a long time. As I alluded to earlier, these verses in Philippians chapter 2, they're a quotation of Isaiah 45. And in the beginning of Isaiah 45, uh, the, the Lord is predicting through Isaiah the decree of Cyrus to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And he says that this bowing and this confessing will be the result, the praise of his name for what he does. But the New Testament understands this restoration of the earthly Jerusalem as a foreshadow, a foretaste of the consummation of the new heavenly Jerusalem. That heavenly city, when all the people of the Lord will worship with reverence and awe, that city that that has no need of sun and moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, that city where nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May we be a people who often pray that great final prayer in the Scriptures, Revelation twenty two twenty. Come, Lord Jesus. And while that is certainly the great hope that this passage affords to the Christian. It is also the great warning that this passage has for the non-believer. When that day comes, even the most militant and hostile opponents of the church will have no choice but to bow and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Paul is not ambiguous. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And there is no asterisk in your Bible that gives an exception to that. All. Even those who have not repented of sin and trusted in Christ. William Hendrickson observes, At his return in glory, 
Jesus will be worshipped by the whole body of created intelligent beings in all the departments of the universe. Angels and redeemed human beings will do this joyfully. The damned will do it ruefully, remorsefully, not penitently. In other words, those who worship Jesus from the heart in this life, they will bow the knee in victory. But those who reject him will bow the knee in defeat. Indeed, as blessed as the thought is to a Christian, it is an equally sober warning to the non-Christian. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're not trusting in Christ. Maybe you know that's you and you are afraid. If that's you, I would urge you, call on the name of the Lord. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're not sure how to do that or what I mean, please see myself or one of our ruling elders after, and we would be delighted to pray with and for you to that end. Or perhaps you're listening to me, and you know that you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, and that doesn't concern you at all. Because after all, you don't believe in him, so you certainly don't believe he's coming back. Maybe you're here tonight... And if that's you, I would earnestly say what we believe about a thing, whether we believe it or not, has no bearing on whether or not it's true. Jesus is not coming back because I believe that he is. He's coming back because he said that he is, and therefore I believe him. He is coming back, and your knee will bow, and your tongue will confess that he is Lord. But that confession, at that time, will not save you. It will be the last thing you do before being cast into eternal fire, to the place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that will be his just judgment for your sins. I take no delight in telling you that. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. What I do take delight in telling you, however, is that that does not have to happen. One day, it will be too late. But today is not that day. Today is the day of salvation. If you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved, and you will enjoy the same blessings and benefits that I just laid out for the Christian. Finally, perhaps, you're one who's Not sure where you're at spiritually. You believe that what this passage says is true, but you're not sure if you're trusting enough. You're not sure if you're believing enough. To that I would say, the fact that you're concerned about these matters is a very good sign. I would remind you that you're not saved by the quantity of your faith, but by the object of your faith. Said a different way, you're not secured by the amount or the strength of your faith, but the one in whom your faith is in. You may think, but I am a great sinner. How could I have saving faith and be a great sinner? To which I say, you are a great sinner. 
and it's worse than you know. But I also say, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And though faith comes in different degrees, weak and strong, and it may be in often ways assailed and weakened, it gets the victory. Indeed, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that He has satisfied God's wrath against your sins and made you righteous through faith. Doubting Christian, this is for you. Believing Christian, this is for you. It's for you. But it's not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. What is it about? Why go through all of this? Why send Jesus? Why send him again? Why does God do anything? Look with me again at the end of verse 11, which says, All of this is to the glory of God the Father. And so as we conclude tonight, we will consider the glory of of Christ's return. Why will some knees bow and confess that Christ is Lord at the last day and enter eternal paradise? And other knees will bow and other tongues will confess before entering eternal damnation on the same day. Well, what this passage makes painfully clear, among other things, it makes this very clear. The whole pattern of Christ's life from his incarnation to the second coming are all means to one end, to the praise of the glory of God. Now it's easy for us to see how God would be glorified in saving people. That's what we naturally think of, and that's true. But he is also glorified in his just judgment of the wicked. God is zealous for his own glory above all things. God is zealous for his glory in my salvation. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For the sake of his name. God is also zealous for his glory in the judgment of the wicked. He says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, Exodus 9.16. And until we understand that God's ultimate aim is His own glory, there is very little we will understand of our own lives and the world in which we live, all of which has been made for His glory. And there's even less that we will understand of His Word. But there is something else to notice here. All of this grandeur surrounding the exaltation of Christ that we spent so much time on earlier this month. The bestowal of the name, the the, the resurrection, the ascension, the, the sitting at the right hand of the Father, all of it. It's not for Christ's own glory, but for the glory of the Father is what the verse says. The interrelations of the Trinity but especially of the Father and the Son, are the backbone of what makes this whole passage, and really you could say the whole of Scripture work. Why 
did Christ, though he was in the form of God, empty himself and take the form of a servant. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did Christ Jesus become obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross? Because for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why was Jesus declared to be the Son of God in power? Because God highly exalted him. The point is that that while we can differentiate and distinguish the works within the Godhead, we cannot divide them. They are united. They are in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, just as Paul told the church to be in Philippians 1.27. The Father and the Son are so united that one of them cannot be exalted without the other one being glorified. There is no selfish ambition and vain conceit within the Godhead. Therefore, neither should there be in the church. Just as the Father exalts the Son and the Son glorifies the Father, so should we seek the good of one another, even above our own. R. Kent Hughes points out, Others first is both a sign that the gospel is well among us and a necessity for the health of the church. Others' directedness encapsulates the role of a good husband as defined in Ephesians 5. His soul is a thermometer, monitoring the Fahrenheit of her soul. Others' directedness practically defines the role of a parent, producing protective fathers and nurturing mothers who regard their children as more important than themselves. But here's the thing about others' directedness. It's hard It's hard because of sin. Sometimes it's hard because of sin on our part. Sometimes it's hard because of sins on their part. But if we remember that it is all for the sake of the glory of God and not what we feel the other person is owed and not what we feel we are uh, willing to do, but all for the glory of God, then we can do it anyway. That's the freedom of Christianity. Free to do the right thing regardless of the circumstances. Free to have that difficult conversation with a loved one who does not know the Lord. Freedom to treat people kindly even when they have wronged you. Freedom to make the hard decision knowing that there will be backlash Because you're no longer a slave to the whims of the world, but you are a servant of the living and true God, doing all things to his glory. It is hard, but it is worth it. You know, there was some degree of wisdom in that 17-year-old Kenny Loggins. He was right to be worried about becoming an adult because life in a fallen world is, as we have said, hard. 
Because so long as human beings are selfish and conceited, which is to say, until Christ returns, there will be strife and tension and division. Yes, even in the church. But despite his fears and trepidations, Kenny did find a way back to the wood. Nearly 30 years later, in the spring of 1994, he revisited his nostalgic song about Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh, but this time through the eyes of his son. And what he found was, amid all the stress of life in this world, he found a measure of peace in coming full circle. And that's, that's a sweet sentiment. But we need more than a sweet sentiment. And in the second coming of Christ, more will be given to us than a sweet sentiment. Because God is not bringing creation full circle. He is bringing it to its intended purpose, where we will dwell body and soul with God to the full enjoying of Him to all eternity. When at the return of Christ, the name of Yahweh will be hallowed in the earth. At the return of Christ, all made in His image, will bow the knee and confess that He is Lord. And this will be done to the glory of the Father. And in that, we find comfort that is both real and guaranteed. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we rejoice at the name of Jesus. We rejoice that He came, that He died, that He was raised and that He ascended and that He will return. We, re we rejoice that in all of that, You will receive all glory. Oh, how we long for the day when creation will sing the glory of her God and King. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask it in Your name and for Your glory. Amen.